Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last August, here on the Blister Podcast, I spoke with Benjamin Alexander about his bid to become Jamaica's first Olympic alpine ski racer. That is episode number 178 of the Blister Podcast, and I would definitely encourage you to go back and check out that episode if you haven't heard it already. And today, we have Benji back on the podcast because now... Benji is no longer bidding to become Jamaica's first Olympic alpine ski racer. Just a few weeks ago in Beijing, he became Jamaica's first Olympic alpine ski racer. And so it was time to check back in with Benji and to have him talk about this wild journey that he's been on, have him present a number of the details about the run-up to the games and what it was like being at the games and then, of course, competing at the games. And then we talk quite a bit about the aftermath, including some of the controversies that have risen up since the games, which gets us into a really important conversation about what are the Olympic Games for and what are they supposed to do and represent? And Benji's comments on all of that, I think, are really important, and you need to hear them. Finally, Benji shares a number of big plans and big ideas about where things go from here and his vision for increasing participation in winter sports, which really is just a microcosm for helping us think through how we create more opportunities for all kinds of people all around the world to go into any pursuit that they might be interested in following. And so while becoming Jamaica's first Olympic alpine ski racer is a remarkable accomplishment, I can tell you it sort of feels to me like this is actually just the beginning, not the end. And well, now I'm going to let you see for yourself in this conversation. One final thing, you should absolutely be following Benji, and you can find him on social channels at Benji.ski, because again, his personal Olympic achievements, that's not the end of something. It really is just the beginning, and all of us are going to want to be following along and rooting for and perhaps finding ways in which we can each help bring about this big vision. And so with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Benji Alexander. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to have back on the podcast, Benji Alexander. My goodness, sir, your life has certainly been interesting since last we had you on the Blister podcast. Let's just go ahead and get into it. Well, I guess let's give a brief recap of where things were when we spoke last, which was roughly you were still very much working hard to, well, make this mission, which you can explain to us, happen. Let me just let you take it from there. Yeah. So I think you and I probably spoke at uh, one of the deepest troughs on this whole two-year mission. Um, I was stuck away from snow by virtue of the borders to the Southern Hemisphere countries with skiing being remaining firmly shut. 
Um, and then with the added complexity of Brexit just kind of really kicking in at the beginning of last year, I was having visa issues to be able to get on snow in Europe. And because the whole Brexit thing was so brand new to everyone and my situation was so unique, and honestly, I didn't even realize that I was running up against a deadline in, in the European Union, I just struggled to find the right legal advice to be able to get back on snow. And look, when you're doing something incredibly outlandish, such as trying to go to the Olympics in a, such a short period of time, and you keep losing weeks, which turn into months of that incredibly compressed time frame to get to the goal, it's this feeling of desperation um, and despair that this goal is sliding through your fingers and it, it, it's, it's completely out of your control. Um, and so managed to get that resolved, got back onto snow in, in September of last year, despite having my passport go missing in the mail for a month, another uh, complexity to the whole problem, and just really hammered it, training in Austria all the way through um, September, um, you know, beg, borrowing and stealing any piece of advice or any piece of coaching uh, information that I could get. I think he ended up working with 10 coaches in the month of October because I couldn't be on my home mountain with my main coach because of the weather conditions were not great enough. And, you know, the, the president of the ski federation passed away that month as well. The Jamaican ski federation that kind of left me without my main guy in Jamaica to kind of sing, uh, or fight my causes. Um, but just managed to get to some races, um, at the end of the year, got to races up in Sweden and Finland and then moved to Eastern Europe and went to races in Bosnia that were canceled for bad weather, went to races in Montenegro, um, contracted COVID again for the second time in a 12 month period, despite having all of my vaccines and boosters. And again, had that feeling of despair of this goal falling through my fingertips. Um, and then went to a series of races in Melbourne, Liechtenstein, uh, right at the end of the qualification window and managed to qualify 72 hours, I think it was, before the deadline. Um, I had races booked in Czech Republic on the Friday, the 14th, Germany on the 15th, and Italy on the 16th, had I not qualified in Liechtenstein. And that would have been 20 hours of driving in a 72-hour period on top of qualifying. So, look... I just felt like I was going to go down swinging. If this thing wasn't going to happen, I was going to be fighting to the very last. And fortunately, since we last spoke, I, I managed to get it over the line. Did you ever get to a point where you're just like, I don't see this happening? Or did you just not let yourself kind of go there? It was like... It's, it's a really good question because there were many moments where I thought this wasn't going to happen. And as someone that likes to think through things rationally and logically... You have to make a decision whether you want to keep pouring time into this and money into this if you think it's becoming something that's verging on impossible. And I think it's a, a good motivational thing to be thinking about that sometimes when you believe it's impossible, if you keep trying, something may happen. And for me, the way that I looked at it was, look, I've already invested two years exclusively into this mission now. What does it hurt to just kind of throw another month and another two months at this and see what happens? Uh, but yeah. I wanted to give up 20 times a month over the last six months, for sure. You and I were talking before we hit the record button. You have been talking a lot. You have done a lot of media. And we were talking actually about how tricky that could be. And so, somewhat cruelly, I might ask you this, the type of question that we just got done sort of agreeing it was a difficult one. But having been through this now and we're, we'll keep going with the story but 
for somebody who is coming in a bit cold to what we're talking about and maybe didn't catch the last conversation we had or, or wasn't following along your story. Now I want to ask you that hard question of sum up for me what in fact you were trying to do. And part of my reason for asking this is because I, I imagine the articulation of what you were trying to do shifts over time. And so I'm just curious to hear your answer now from maybe where it was two years ago or when you first started hatching this idea. So anyway, I'll stop. The floor is yours. What in fact was the kind of goal or the mission? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There has been an evolution. Um, So when I began skiing or when I first observed my friends skiing, my mission was to be good enough to keep up with my friends. That then turned into this crazy idea of potentially trying to become the first ever alpine ski racer to represent the nation of Jamaica. I'm half Jamaican. And that just started off as a personal challenge. Let's see if this thing is possible. That evolved into becoming an ambassador for diversity in winter sports right around the time when George Floyd passed away. That's when I started to get a lot of media attention that far outweighed my skiing ability, shall we say. Uh, being written up in Powder Magazine, as an example, far outweighed my skiing ability then. Um, and it was something I was very happy to, to lean into, right? Being a mixed race person, we all often um, have this kind of chameleon-like feeling of, are we representing white people in this room or, or black people in this room? And I would always be the black representative in skiing. What's really interesting is having succeeded in my goal of trying to go to the Olympics as Jamaica's first ever alpine ski racer, The story has now evolved into less of a personal story and less of being an ambassador for um, diversity in the sports from a personal point of view, but really just trying to blaze a path to allow the next generation of of Jamaicans and other small nations, predominantly from non-white backgrounds, to get access and to, to get into the sport and Look, I'm hoping to become the president of the Jamaican Ski Federation and head into to, to, to Jamaica in two weeks' time uh, to have a chat about that. And I already have a Rolodex of about a dozen athletes that could potentially represent Jamaica at the next games. And so now what I want this moment to feel like is a line in the snow where forever going forward, Jamaica will have skiers and hopefully snowboarders at the Olympic Games. And it just takes the hard work, uh, hard work and effort and perhaps a little bit of crazy from one person to start that thing um, and then for it to kind of perpetuate from there, just like with the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team. Interesting. So that gets really at the heart of this right now. Like, first of all, I wanted to leave you alone for a while because I've had a sense of just how intense life has been and the demands on you. And so I've kind of had, well, honestly, for me, I've been more interested in the personal, like, how are you doing? And we're going to get into, I want to ask some of these questions of like, what was it like for you at the games? I want to talk about the specific runs, but you have been living in this world where it's very much like, well, there's your personal experience. But as you just said, well, this has gone into like, you're now the representative of like, I don't know, almost everything. That's a very, I'd say, interesting weight to have upon one's shoulders, right? Um, <laughs> you're like, yeah, that, that was a, that, that, I just got a nod that uh, seemed to suggest that, 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 that resonated. We're going to talk maybe more about what this has meant, what your involvement, your personal involvement has meant on a broader scale. But 
let's go back to the personal. So you pull this off, you qualify, you learn, you're going to the Olympics, you're going to be competing. Pick up from there. Yeah. So a lot of people would expect that the emotions there would have been of shock. Um, But coming from an engineering background, this whole thing, despite how crazy it may sound to the, you know, the casual observer or listener was something that was planned and was believed to be possible, right? I believe that in a two year period of racing and training, I would be able to get my abilities to the point where I could qualify for the Olympics. The only reason it took so long is because of the pandemic, right? And so of the 24 months of this project, 17 of those months had no, I had no access to competition, right? So this incredibly short time frame became shorter and shorter and shorter. And so my feeling was not of shock, but was of relief that the thing had actually happened. Um, and then things just went crazy, right? Um, I qualify there was a lot of media attention around me before having qualified, including a full write-up on my life story in Time magazine and just lots of really, really big outlets that had filmed things and, and written up on me that then wanted to come back and just be like, well, how does it feel? What's happening now? Talk us through this whole process. And so the amount of media coverage we've had has literally been overwhelming, as you said, and thank you for wanting to take a step back. I can finally breathe now and feel a little bit normal. Um, I have a PR team who've been working and helping and they calculate we've done over 8.4 billion media impressions in the last two months, which, you know, for anyone that has an understanding of marketing, that probably puts me in the top 10 athletes coming out of the Olympic Games, right behind Michaela's uh, issue, shall we say, Chloe Kim, um, and Eileen Gu, and maybe the frozen penis guy. <laughs> yeah, not really. But, um, but yeah, no, so it's, it's, it's just been absolutely insane. Um, getting everything ready at the, at the last minute to go to the games, right? Remembering that I qualified three weeks, less than three weeks before the opening ceremony was incredibly challenging especially doing so for a brand new sport that my country had never been represented in before. There's a lot of kind of institutional knowledge that the country and the Jamaican Olympic Association didn't have. There were incredible stressors around almost missing some administrative deadlines three or four days after I'd actually qualified to confirm and accept my place. Um, So it's always funny because in life you feel like if I just achieve this one thing that I will have arrived and then you you get to that place and you realize, actually, no, there's just more stress and there are more things to, to fight and there are more battles to be won. And so it was definitely a life lesson because every moment along this path, such as arriving in Beijing, when I felt like, okay, we've arrived. No, there's no bedrooms available for you. And, you know, no one has sorted out the accreditation for you. Like there was always just something more and more and more and more to do. So overwhelming really has been the, the word for the last two months. Okay, so that maybe starts to form an answer to my next question, because I I wanted to ask you just about the experience of being at the games. But if you are dealing with incredibly basic and fundamental logistical stuff, maybe we're not quite, you know, at the point where we can say, how was it hanging out with, you know, your fellow Olympians. And what was that like? If you're like, dude, I needed to find a room where I could stay. <laughs> but I I mean, did it ever get to the point where you got the sort of logistical stuff behind you and you could just sort of be at the games? 
Not fully, no. But, you know, I'm, I'm a 10-year burner. Um, some people will know what that means, but that means they've been going to Burning Man for the last 10 years. And this is a, I will say it's an experimental society that takes place out in the desert. And one of the things that they promote so heavily is radical self-reliance, right? And it's not uncommon to show up and just have no place to sleep and for you to have to figure it out. So that wasn't so much of a problem. Um, I think the bigger issue as it pertains to how was the experience at the Olympic Games um, was really around the combination of kind of the authoritarianism of, of China combined with the COVID situation. Now, here we are in America. I'm recording this in LA. I just got here from Jackson. And other than having to wear a mask on the plane, it feels as if COVID is not a thing anymore. Um, in China, they've had a very different approach to the problem. And so we literally went into something that was very similarly eerie, like the Squid Games. I, we got off the plane welcomed by a half a dozen you know, members of staff in ha full-on hazmat suits and didn't have the opportunity to, act, to interact with any of the locals outside of hazmat suits, right? There would be moments where you're walking through the, the corridor and the athlete that was staying beside you all of a sudden has vanished and there are five guys in hazmat suits just like disinfecting the room. It literally felt like being in Squid Games. And that, that, that obviously took a lot of fun out of it. Um, historically, um, at the Olympics, there is a lot of fun to be had in the, in the Olympic village, shall we say. Um, but I think not only because of the, the influence and the decisions made by the organizing committee at China, but also I think a lot of the national Olympic committees had warned their athletes just to kind of stay cool, not to get into too much social interaction with other athletes. Because for these guys, they've trained their entire lives for this moment. Um, and to get COVID a couple of days before their event and, poten and potentially even infect the rest of the national team would be an absolute disaster. And so you could feel it. People were very, very, you know, on the back foot, not wanting to interact with other people. Um, there was, there were no social spaces open at all. I saw some of them, but they were all closed. The only real time that you had the opportunity to interact with other athletes was at the dining hall, um, which you'd have to sanitize your hands and put on gloves to go into. Um, and then everyone was just sat single file facing the same way with a three, three walls of kind of perspex around them. Um, and so there wasn't really that much interaction between the athletes. Yes, I got to say congratulations to Petra Vilahova. Yes, I got to train right next to Michaela and hang out with some of the other incredible athletes just briefly, maybe even on a gondola or something like that. But there wasn't that social side of the games like I believe the, they usually are. So it was a very, very muted experience. And having lived in Asia for 10 years, um, I knew that regardless as to whether it would require sucking all of the fun out of the games, China were going to make that thing happen at all costs. Let's talk about the skiing itself. Training runs, you know, your competition runs. Walk us through that part of it. Right. So one of the really interesting things um, that I could share with your audience, because they're you know technically au fait with skiing and such, to qualify men are allowed to use a slightly easier, more forgiving ski, right? I was actually allowed to qualify on the women's 188 30-meter giant slalom ski. 
But when you step up into the big leagues, you cannot use that ski. You have to step up to the 193 um, 30 meter turning or 30 meter uh, turning radius ski. And so I had just picked up that ski from Atomic 10 days before the Olympics and had never skied it before getting to the Olympics. But for me, what's really interesting is, as I've said before, and I probably said on the recording last time, I wasn't going there to be competitive. And that's going to lead us to something later on in this talk. I my gold medal was qualifying to show that this was possible and everything on top of that was was the kind of like the icing on the cake shall we say including walking in the opening ceremony including being nominated to be the flag bearer for jamaica which was probably one of the most insane things that they've ever done in my life um and so training the facilities in the yangqing alpine village are incredible they are absolutely amazing and for certain if that existed in the southern hemisphere that would print money. The All of the biggest ski nations in the world would go there all the time, right? Because the desire to train through the summer months. Because it sits in China, I think, unfortunately, it's going to be one of those relics that just kind of gets mothballed and doesn't get much use after the first few years, right? Which is a shame because the facilities are world-class. I cannot even begin to imagine how many billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of man hours went into creating that whole space. It's, it was, it was top notch. It sits in a place that gets on average less snow than London, England. So absolutely all of the snow is man-made. Um, and so getting out there and training was great for me. It was really about just understanding how I felt on that ski. Um, training before a big competition is also about the balance of getting as much training as possible without walking into the competition, being fatigued and tired. Um, and just really getting a lay of the land so that when it's your day to compete, you're not trying to figure out which chairlift you need and where should I be? Um, I have a slightly different situation to most of the other athletes that are walking there with, you know, established coaches and people that are going to figure all this stuff out for them. I didn't, I didn't have that set up. Um, I thought the conditions were, were really great. Um, but again, I'm not like the other athletes. The other athletes have to give it 110, 150% and pray that nothing goes wrong for a chance for them to get a medal. Because if they don't do that, someone else will do that. And that's why we saw, you know, the greatest skier of all time, in my opinion, Michaela, really struggle. And lots of the other greats really, really struggle with those conditions because they just couldn't quite get to grasp with it quick enough. No one had skied there before. Um, and we really didn't have access to the race course until the day of the race. We were allowed to free ski on it for one hour the day before the race, but that's it. And we were training on a completely different surface that had just reacted in a completely different way to the actual race course. So I think for the best in the world, that set them up for failure. Was there something in particular about the snow itself or do you think it was more just well we just went to a different surface so there wasn't the opportunity to get that familiar yeah i think it's a bit of both so it's ironic to think that something man-made would have less consistency than something mother nature would deliver right you would assume that you'd be able to get a, a consistency to that surface that would be unachievable in nature but it definitely went from some incredibly slick sections to some incredibly grippy sections and i think a big part of the problem was all of the staff that were trained to be out there um, are, are relatively new skiers 
And so what happens is, and we've seen this before, when you have a, a perfectly groomed slope in the morning, everything is nice and grippy. But by the afternoon, when all the beginner skiers have been going down sideways and just kind of scraping off that surface, you get to a really hard, slick surface underneath. These, these courses, especially the training course, had just had thousands of beginner slash intermediate staff skiers just sliding down it sideways. And so now you're just on this rock solid surface at the bottom. So yeah, it created a lot of inconsistency. And I think that's a big part of the reason why they tried to keep the race slopes closed as much as possible to prevent it just being that, you know, miserable ice underneath. Walk me through your actual runs. So we get through the training stuff. You said you felt like the conditions actually were pretty good with the caveat that you already laid out very well. So let's get into it. Are you are you feeling okay coming in? Are you nervous as hell? Where was your headspace? So after watching the women uh, four or five days before my race, like we said, Michaela struggled. Marta Bassino, one of the best in the world, crashed after three gates. Nina O'Brien, double compound fracture plus ACL blown out. You know, after seeing what the women had to deal with, I was definitely intimidated by, by the whole situation. And then being bib number 83, gave me the opportunity to actually sit in the athletes lounge and watch the top 20 guys go out. And again, seeing some of those some of those guys struggle so for the listeners that that didn't pay attention to the the date that i raced and, and my discipline um i raced on the only day that had fresh snow it was the biggest dump of snow that they had had in eight years and they just were not ready for it um the visibility was atrocious and so this adds to the nerves right um so getting to the top of the course and seeing that, you know, they, they, they always keep the racing line clean, but seeing that just a couple of feet outside of the racing line is this huge one foot, 12 inches, you know, 14 inch snowbank, which is, you know, guaranteed failure or guaranteed fall if you hit it, just put the fear of God in me. I, I literally felt like asking the race organizers, do you think that's safe? Like that is, and so much so that they actually kind of just, muscled through and made the first uh, run happen, but had to delay the second run to put the grooming machines on the race, which never happens on the race course to clear off all the additional snow. There was so much snow in the first run that athletes, some of the best athletes in the world were actually crashing in the finish area because there was just so much snow there. So the first run for me was, look, I saw that snow bank on the side and so I very gingerly pushed out of the start gate. I did not, you know, I had visions of hitting that snowbank and cartwheeling down after the first gate and being the laughing stock of the games. But once I kind of got into a groove, I felt okay. I felt like this is achievable. Just don't make any mistakes. I came into this race with, the, I believe, with a completely different mindset to all of the other athletes, including the other small nations. And I'd like to talk about that. For us as small nation representatives, our threshold for qualification is so far off of the best in the world 
that we are not there to race. We are there to participate. We are there to represent our countries and, and do the best we can. But we have zero chance of coming within the top 20. The threshold which I was able to achieve would be the same as, you know, if one of the parents of a racer is listening right now, the level of their child at the age of 16. You can't imagine that your 16-year-old would go up there and race against a, a Ted Ligeti or a Bodie Miller or a Marco Odomat and be anywhere near them. And that's the level that we um, are able to qualify at. Now, from my point of view, I wanted to make sure that I finished both runs. That was my only objective, no matter how slow. And what's what's really upsetting for some of my friends is when you are lower down in the rankings, the start interval gets pretty, you know, pretty punchy. Every 40 seconds, another racer goes out compared to the best in the world where they give it two minutes so you can watch the whole run and watch the replays and then the next guy goes out and the drama of watching the best in the world. So for some of my friends, what that meant is they're going out into the course while the previous guy is still in the course. The camera obviously follows, follows that previous athlete to the finish and then cuts to you when you're already like 30 seconds into the course. Some of my friends crashed in those first 30 seconds. So their moment of fame of being on the TV screens after all of this work was literally five seconds. And then the camera goes to the next racer and that's it. And then that's all you've done for your country. And so... I just played the conservative game and wanted to be as slow as possible. Um, the conditions were much more challenging than I thought they were going to be based on having, you know, wearing bib number 83. And so I'm going through the ruts of 80 of the world's best, most strongest athletes. Um, I don't have the ability to carve the skis in their ruts. And so you end up bouncing across them, which is just incredibly challenging for the back and for the legs. And so it really felt like hanging on for dear life. When it came to the second run and knowing that the conditions were going to be a little better because they delayed the race and cleared it, I felt much more confident. Um, but really, my legs were gassed halfway through that second run, and it was really a matter of just holding on for dear life. I'm just happy to have finished. You know, 41 athletes crashed in those incredible conditions. Um, and some of them were, as I said, the athletes that were having to push 120, 150% to try to get to a medal. But some of them were just people that just made simple mistakes. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have survived, which was my goal. Man, I was watching and watching crash after crash. And this is the part where I kind of said a while ago, you know, you've been doing this two things. There's the personal you know, my personal interests, like, hey, man, how are you doing? And then there's this thing where you are a representative for all of this other massive stuff. And I'm like, you can't freaking crash right now, man. You cannot freaking crash right now. And it's almost one of those things where, in a way, you know, you've already said, like, you didn't have the pressure of, like, if I want to end up on the podium Every ski racer has to go flat out at the limit at all time. There cannot be a margin. There cannot. You won't win. But the reverse pressure that I was feeling for you was like, if you, be, frankly, and, and this is my headspace, and I will see if you agree with it. Watching, and I was so nervous, I was like, look, all of us who ski, we catch an edge. You do something sometimes in the simplest, dumbest area and you crash and you're like, I don't even know what happened right there. That was silly. Right. And I'm like this. If this happens to you right now, 
there are going to be too many people out there that are going to be like, see, see. And so did that resonate with you? I mean, were you feeling that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in my situation, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And if I finish super slow, there are going to be the haters that say, what is this about? How can, how, what does this represent in the Olympics? And if I crash, there are going to be the haters that say, you know, it was never good enough to be there in the first place. And I'm very willing to kind of take that weight on my shoulders. There are many other athletes that are kind of similar to my ability out there, but it seems as though a lot of the media attention is focused on me. And I don't mind that. I'm happy to be a spokesperson for, for all of our small nations and for kind of the increased diversity in the sport. But yeah, it was really about just maintaining focus, trying not to make the silly mistakes. And as I was coming down on the second run, I was obviously the slowest in the first. So I went out last in the second run. There was a moment where I kind of waved to some of the guys on the side and stuck up my tongue to the, one of the cameras. And I said, no, 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 focus. Don't crash doing something stupid now. Um, because the cheers were just awesome at that moment from the, the staff. But yeah, it was really about just not trying not to make a stupid mistake, exactly as you said, a, a catching an edge or something that you don't even know why you crashed would have been the absolute worst way to, to end that story. So you do finish. Was it immediately a sense of relief? Was it almost no chance for relief? Because again, there you were getting so much attention and media requests and the like. Talk about you know, once, once the work is done effectively, the skiing work, the ski part of it is done. Yeah. So I didn't realize that when you're in the down at the bottom and you come into the finish area, that there's a hot mic on you. Right. So in the first run, I got to the bottom and I just speak my mind. The thing that came out of my mind was, or out of my mouth was, freaking hell, that was hard. <laughs> and so people were sending me messages to be like, did you know the mic was on? Which I didn't know. But that gave me an opportunity to think about what to say when I came down the next time. And so I skied straight to the camera and I said, that was for everyone who believes they don't have a place in winter sports. Let's get your kids into skiing uh, at an earlier age. Let's change the game. And then I, I said, thanks. And I skied off and then he followed me. And so I spoke my mind again and I said, I'm exhausted. I need a massage and a beer. <laughs> and that was, that was really funny because I, I forget which celebrity it was that posted it, but he made a, a tweet that says, Benjamin Alexander finishes 60 seconds behind the gold medalist says, exhausted. I need a massage and a beer. Olympians, they're just like us. And I thought that was great, right? Because, you know, the best of the best of the best in the world is unattainable for 99.6 Sigma, 99.999% of the world, right? And sometimes those people are almost inhuman because they are so dedicated and they're so focused. And from an entertainment perspective, we are blessed to have those people, but they are quite often unrelatable. So having someone in the game such as me who just started skiing six years ago, just had the race two years ago, is likely to inspire far more people than the best of the best of the best because a lot of people just were not born in those circumstances with their father being a ski racer and their parents having millions of dollars to put into their ski racing career. Um, immediately from that, you just go into a whirlwind of media. 
um, they had set up this really nice feature where you could have like a Zoom meeting with friends from all over the world. And so I had friends from England, friends from Jackson, friends from uh, Mexico City, all on the screen, just kind of like well wishing me afterwards, which was incredible. I'd had a lot of great support ahead of time as well. Travis Rice was up at Boldface recording something, got all of his guys to send me some good, some well wishes and stuff. And that was good. And then you just go into this you know, this scrum of media, uh, where I think I gave 50 interviews, um, right off the back of it. And then we left, we wanted to get back. Um, most people would stay around for a little while. There was really nothing going on in the village. And my friends had put together a great event for me back in Jackson. And so I literally began packing my bags as soon as I took off my ski boots and then embarked on the mission of going from Beijing to to, to Tokyo, to Dallas, to Jackson, and straight into pretty much what turned into almost a 20 hour party. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't know if I answered the question, but there we are. <laughs> no, I think you have. And so, okay. So you finally got your kind of party, your chance to kind of hopefully really exhale and, and celebrate a bit. And then I do want to talk more about sort of the aftermath, right? And you've already said, I think, spoken quite well about the mission, the purpose for doing this, your comments after your second run spells it out pretty clearly, but it's been interesting, right? Part of the story has been a bit of the response to this and questions about, well, what are we doing here? And how does this qualification process work? And is it fair? Well, I knew that I wanted to talk to you about some of this and you have been a person sort of right at the center of so much of this conversation. So talk a bit more about how you have perceived or, you know, viewed, you know, the, the raising of the questions about qualifications and the like. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to something that I was saying a long time ago. When George Floyd passed, people were always trying to structure a question in a way that would lead me to say that ski racing was racist and it's absolutely not racist. Right. Um, and one of the responses that I would give is that everyone has been so incredibly warm and so incredibly friendly and supportive, but I added the caveat of, but let's see if that continues when we become competitive. Right. If you're supporting someone that has no chance of impacting you in any way, it's like, great, let's, you know, give them all the time and, and all of the support and love. And what happened when I qualified in January and a couple of other the small nations had qualified in December and January is that even though we are not competitive on a, on a speed basis, on a time basis, we actually became competitive on a allocation slash quota basis for who gets to go to the Olympics. Now, what a lot of people are, are not talking about because they wouldn't dare is that FIS, the International Ski Federation, has for the first time ever implemented gender equality. And actually, the gender equality has been the biggest cause for, for problems, um, but the small nations have been the scapegoat. So I'll explain. In previous Olympics, each country had the ability to send a maximum of 22 athletes, 
and a maximum of 14 per gender, right? And that's a very nice way of saying 14 men because never in the history of, of skiing have there ever been 14 females representing a country. So now immediately, those countries that were used to sending their 14 best men are, are capped immediately down to 11 by virtue of something outside of their, their control. Um, on top of that, the overall number of Alpine athletes allowed to go was dropped quite drastically as well, I think from 360 to 306. And there are a few more um, of small nations that are now having the opportunity to send their first ever athlete, right, such as Jamaica. And so this perfect storm was created where gender equality reduced overall numbers and a couple of extra countries wanting to qualify on, on the bottom end of things just created this squeeze where lots of countries found themselves in a situation where they were only able to send 16 athletes instead of 22 Right. And it created this incredible friction between who is more deserving of going to the Olympics. This one country over here with an athlete that we know is not going to be competitive because the rules are set up in a way to promote diversity and inclusion. Or should it be this athlete over here who is the 17th representative for one of the top 10 countries. Um, and what's interesting about the Winter Olympics is that there are only 85, 90 flags in representation compared to the 205 flags that go to the Summer Games. There's a huge disparity there. And that's predominantly because most of the Winter Games are uh, equipment heavy, very expensive sports that are predominantly only enjoyed by you know the more affluent nations on the country. And if you look at the dispersion of medals uh, for the Winter Games, it's the five countries that are around the Alps. It's the three Scandinavian countries and North America. And no one else really has a chance of getting anywhere close to the medals for the most part, right? And the way that I look at this is, if that continues to be the case for the Winter Games, then eventually the other countries just say, you know what? You're great at this. We suck. We have no interest. We'll put our money into something else. And we're seeing, you know, that the TV figures drop off a cliff, for the Olympics. There's so much more to watch these days with Netflix or with YouTube and all of the other things that kids are, are taking their time uh, to, to invest their, you know, their time into. And I think it's really important that the Olympics do and does continue, do continue to support diversity to make sure more countries are interested in, 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 in the sports that we love. I was never going to be competitive, but the interest surrounding my race, my run, my participation probably outweighed more than 99% of the other athletes that, that were there, right, on a global basis. And I think it's a very short-term, short-minded uh, person that doesn't see that a rising tide raises all ships and having more countries participate and more countries tune in to watch turns into more sponsor dollars because more people are watching this thing, turns into more people enjoying the sport, turns into you know a greater situation for all of us. And actually, I think that's part of the reason why China was given, uh, part of the reason why China was given the Olympics, because they have an, an initiative to get 300 million people into winter sports over the course of the next generation or so. And if you're sitting here working at Atomic or Lecky or something like that, the prospect of having 300 million more human beings buying your equipment is huge. That's literally a doubling of the size of the industry that you are part of. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's sad to be in the middle of this kind of firestorm as it pertains to that. And it's sad that some athletes were left behind. But for the greater good of the sport, 
I think it was the right thing that, that, that happened in the end. And this is the interesting kind of spectrum or those spectrum is not even the right word. Uh, priorities. We were talking earlier and you said really well, you know, the Olympics is supposed to be about the best of the best competing. It is also, well, I don't know actually if historically we want to say it's also about to be about participation and coming to the games and this global celebration. I don't know if that's baked into the, you know, the constitution or something of the Olympics, but this is, I think, the thing that we all need to think about, right? What do we want the Olympics to be? What should the games be? And on the one hand, if we want to call it, say, meritocracy or simply about the best athletes in a given discipline coming to compete, okay, if that's how you see it, but what about the participatory element of the games, the global celebration, the global community coming together? And I guess if there's somebody who hasn't reflected on that, I'm on team, I want both of those things, right? Two things can be true. And you've said this really well a couple of times in just this conversation and elsewhere, that we still are having the best on earth able to come and compete for the podium. But I know that I also do want to see that participatory element of the games, that inclusive element for, for economic reasons of the sport, for just reasons that I think we're in a world where I want to see more people from more countries have more opportunities to go into whatever they want to go into. And it seems like that's just, call that a value, right? But I think that, is that that difficult for people to wrap their heads around? Like reducing friction or creating inroads for kids to be like, I could maybe think about trying to be a skier someday, or I could think about trying to be an engineer someday. Where are you with all this? Yeah, so knowing that a lot of these questions would be coming up, um, I spent a lot of time just poking around in the International Ski Federation database just to get an understanding of what the top 100 in the world looks like. And I can tell you that for nearly every single discipline, the top 100 in the world would only be 20 countries represented. And actually the worst of them all uh, in terms of lack of diversity and representation would be Super G. If Super G was only about the top 100 athletes, there would only be 10 countries in representation. And if that is what the Olympics turn into, as I said, the rest of the world would have no interest. Um, I can guarantee you that Jamaica had no interest in the Winter Games before the bobsled team um, and, and likewise. So we actually, the beautiful thing is for people that want that, we have that. It's called the World Cup. And I'll tell you that outside of those 10 countries, no one else cares. Absolutely no one cares, right? Um, and so it's important that we have this other event, this other place that we can celebrate participation, that we can have someone that we can get behind and that we can cheer on, um, which is the Olympic Games. And a big part of the Olympic Games is the, you know, the friendly competition between the nations of this planet, right? Outside of war, it's the friendly competition. So, 
Yeah, I love to tune into the Olympics to see the best of the best of the best, but I want to have someone that looks like me that I can cheer. And I, even better, I want to have someone that represents a country that I'm attached to or I'm fond of that I can that I can cheer on. Um, so yeah, it's. I think we need to collectively understand that it can be these two things at once. And it's a shame when people get upset where a country can't send their 17th or their 19th athlete uh, and are trying to find ways to remove a country entirely just so they can get their 17th athlete to the games, which, you know, it's kind of ridiculous in my opinion. I'm a little embarrassed that I hadn't thought of this already, but I love your take on we already have the strict meritocracy. It's called the world cup. And so if that's your deal, you know, maybe that's where you ought to be tuning in. Yeah. Well said. I mentioned you, Cody Townsend and I, uh, we published a conversation just a few days ago and we were, this was actually over on our gear 30 podcast. Normally I'm talking to Cody on our blister podcast, but we brought in this question of just the you know, the qualification process and the the questions of diversity and how this all went down. And one of the things that I said was that I very much want to see the Olympic Games be more inclusive. And I am particularly interested in this where inroads are in fact being created. Opportunities are being created. So it's not just about one person, sort of one isolated person getting into the games to represent a particular country, but what's happening after that, right? And I mean, you've you've spoken a bit in this conversation already to that, but I'd like to hear more about what's already being done, what you're thinking about doing, what some of your ideas are along these lines. Yeah. So I thought long and hard about that because Olympic tourism, someone that just wants to go to be a part of the show is just really self-serving and doesn't do anything beyond that. And I knew that by showing this could be done, despite only coming to the sport age 32, six years ago, would inspire a whole swath of people to not make the mistake and think that just because they're 12 years old and they haven't started ski racing or because they're 14, you know, that this thing is beyond, beyond them. Um, and so I'm working really hard on that side of things right now. Uh, I've been doing a bunch of charity work with the Doug Coombs Foundation. I'm an ambassador for the SOS Outreach based out of Colorado. Both of these entities have the same goal of helping underprivileged uh, children from low socioeconomic backgrounds get into skiing, not just for the joy of the sport, but also because they believe that leadership skills such as you know survival and management can be taught in the outdoors. And we know that very well. And so I'm a huge proponent for that, but really, as I said, what I want to be working on now is figuring it out, figuring out a way to level up from the historic outing of Jamaica putting out seven athletes at these Winter Games and leveling that up to 20 at the next Olympic Games and, and more. And it just takes that first person to kind of figure out how things work, to put together a strategy for an on-ramp of more athletes. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the most obvious examples from these games is Erin Jackson, the African-American US, um, yeah, the African-American lady who won gold in speed skating, who only, only put on a pair of speed skates for the first time five years ago, but she was an incredible rollerblader before that, right? So there are 
many sports with inside of the winter sports arena that have transferable skills from sports you can train anywhere in the world. One of them being cross country, right? Unlike alpine skiing that is 80% about technique, 70, 80% about technique that has to be drilled into you over years and years and years and years. Um, and you know, it's strength uh, and a tiny bit of cardio. It's the other way around for cross country where it's probably 85% cardio and 10, 15% of technique. And that technique you could probably pick up in a, in a crash course three months in Norway or, or somewhere else with some good training facilities. And so part of what I plan to be doing when I go back to Jamaica is start to almost host auditions and castings for incredible long distance, medium distance athletes that may be the fifth best in Jamaica and they'll never make the Jamaican a summer Olympic team, but we could flick them over and start them training for, for, for winter sports. You know, I think of a comedic scene almost exactly like the one from Cool Runnings where they put Sanka into the fridge for two hours to see his tolerance to cold weather just to see who's like going to be a likely candidate and we can have some fun with it as well. But my mission, my journey was showing what's possible. I've been asked many times, will I be at the next Olympic Games? And I say, yes, but I won't be in a race suit. I plan to be in a business suit and holding a beer, watching the other athletes kind of killing themselves and doing what I had to do on the screens just a couple of months ago. You know, I don't think anyone wants to see a 42-year-old athlete. I'll be 42 at the next Games. Um, but I'm super excited to offer my understanding of marketing, my understanding of sponsorship, my understanding of qualification and interaction with the powers that the interaction with the powers that, that be to, to get to where you need to get to, to allow those next generation of athletes to focus more single-mindedly on being the athlete and not having to wear the 50 hats that I had to wear to, to get there, right? Um, and so I'm super excited about that. And that might not just be restricted to uh, Jamaica and Jamaica's uh, presence at the next games. There's a part of me that wants to bring together a kind of a federation of no snow countries, um, knowing that the economies of scale of bringing together 30 countries um, and having them train together will give a much easier on-ramp than trying than everyone trying to do it themselves. And this has all come from my experience of interacting with other small nations that are having the same problems and having the same fights and having the same issues. If we were just to pool our resources, we'd get to where we were going much faster. And the beautiful thing about that is, as I said earlier, there's a deficit of about 120 flags that have never been to the Winter Games that then becomes my potential list of people to solicit athletes from, right? That's, and that's where it gets interesting. What happens in the world if we find a way to bring another 50 athletes into alpine skiing? What happens then when Austria can't send their 10th athlete as opposed to their 22nd athlete? Then do the teeth really come out or do people just kind of have an understanding that this is really about participation? I'm not sure. I have a feeling. Um, but I'm happy to be the uh, agent provoc provocateur on this one. Very interesting. Yeah. And I, I think for those of us who are already in the camp that the Olympic Games are supposed to be about participation and a celebration, you know, friendly games. Um, I like the sound of all of this. Um, and I really frankly like the sound of the pooling coming together pooling resources and knowledge and expertise and countries being able to work together um that sounds really compelling um i did want to ask do you have thoughts on like the qualification process itself 
do you all, I mean, you've already given us more than our fair share of ideas for any single conversation, but like in terms of, you know, for some of the complaints that were registered about the qualification process, have you had time to think through, like, I am sure we can, or maybe not, I am sure we can make changes, but I would like to see these certain changes made to the qualification processes. Where are you on that? I think the qualification requirements for a nation's first athlete are incredibly fair and incredibly attainable. And they are set out that way to facilitate uh, increased diversity and increased participation. I think if you look, if you read between the lines to see where a lot of the, you know, the, the hate or the, or the inquiry is coming into the qualification process, it's from those countries that are having difficulty sending their you know, 19th and 18th and 21st athletes. Because there's this incredible situation in the ski racing world, which let's just for simplicity's sake, call it the haves and the have-nots. You've got those 10 countries that do very well, and you've got the rest of the world that are the have-nots. And there is this incredibly palpable divide in the ski world, especially in ski racing, that if you are part of the have-nots, then you stick together and you help each other out and you support each other on, on your missions. Um, and if you are part of the haves, then you kind of almost like an immigration issue. You want to hold on to what you have, the land that you have, the rights and the, you know, the good fortune that you have, and you don't want to see that erode away and change. And so I think for everyone that's done a bit of reading around this and that is interested in that side of things, you know, just take a step back and read behind the lines. Where are these pieces coming from? Where are the data points coming from? Who are the people that are you know, purporting these stories? Um, and what is their involvement in the ski industry? Are they out there to support the little guy or are they you know, receiving uh, you know, large paychecks from affluent families to have their children learn how to become ski racers? And it's a bit of a divide, um, and it, which is sad that there's a bit of friction around it. But I do believe that the International Ski Federation have set out a, 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 a qualification criteria that is attainable for small nations if they, they put their efforts to it. The problem comes in, in that most people don't understand that that qualification criteria, as we said earlier, is never going to be competitive with the best in the world. And if people can't come to terms with that, if they can't accept that, then they'll never see how this works or how this is fair, right? So, yeah, that, that's kind of my two cents on it. So what's next for you? Do you give yourself some downtime? Do you... I don't really believe you give yourself some downtime, actually. I'm not sure that's quite how this works, <laughs> but correct me, correct me if I'm wrong. I had planned to be on a plane one week after getting back to Jackson was going to go to the United Kingdom to do a bunch of breakfast TV stuff and then loop around to Jamaica, New York and LA. Um, because of the situation in, in Russia and Ukraine, um, the, the whole landscape of what our daily media looks like changed. No one is interested in a, in, in a fireman saving a cat from a tree when there's the potential of nuclear war happening. And the same applies to no one interest, no one's that interested in the Jamaican skier feel good story from the Olympics when serious life is, is being lost. And so that actually gave me a bit of breathing time. Um, I have a lot of public speaking engagements coming up. Um, I'm on a bit of a media tour right now. I'm in LA going to Miami ne uh, at the end of this week and then Jamaica, New York. Um, and so I have a lot of really fun things coming up. 
I haven't fully decided what the next step is. Um, I said that I would love to do an Ironman before my 40th birthday, which is 14 months away. That may be a little challenging without stability, right? It's kind of hard to train for these things if you're living out of suitcases and don't know where your local gym is and all of that stuff. So I might have to bump that to 45. I do have a very, very interesting plan to get in the Guinness Book of Records now as my backup 40th birthday plan. Uh, I'm not going to share what that is, but you'll probably see it in the news 14 months time from now. Um, and I'm super excited about that. But yeah, I, I, I actually am giving myself a little bit of downtime just to kind of let it sink in, just to enjoy the moment um, and to see where it leads me. Well, this has been really fun. I'm glad we got connected back when we did and to sort of be a, well, certainly to be following along, but also, you know, be a small, play a small part in some of this uh, journey has been really interesting. And um, I'm, I'm really proud of what you've pulled off here. And I think that anybody who has heard this conversation, you know, if it's goes from back to the personal story, here's one guy at the games, what's happening. But I think you've articulated really well, the power here and the reverberations that can come from this and the vision of that. I just think that's a really exciting vision, certainly for all of winter sports. But again, beyond that, where we just talk about trying to create a world where we are just reducing friction or creating more opportunities and inroads for people in any walk that makes it um even bigger than you know just those of us who love winter sports so appreciate all of that yeah well i mean i hope that it's shown as you said that you know nothing is impossible if we set our minds to it and I just want to thank you while we're recording for connecting me with one of my biggest sponsors. You know, Atomic came into my life as a direct result of you and having this wonderful conversation we had back in August. So I really appreciate that. And you definitely are a part of the story. Hmm. Well, thank you. And and that was just um, after we talked that first time, I, you know, then we were talking after and I was like, okay, this you were explaining a bit where you were or weren't with sponsorships. And I was like, we need to, we need to lend a hand here and, uh, and look what you've done. I mean, look what you've done. So like I said, I'm really proud of you and, uh, I can't wait to see where you go with all of this. I mean, you've laid some of it out and, you know, we will keep talking. And if there's anything that we can do to just, keep this vision moving forward you 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 know how to reach me <laughs> but you also you also um are, are pretty capable on your own so i i think uh yeah i'm not saying you need need any help yeah, uh, but yeah. i would just love to continue to help in any small way we can um to uh to to help bring together some of the things that you've laid out here so benjamin thank you so much <laughs> thanks for having me again <laughs> Take care and uh, talk to you soon and look forward to whenever it is that we finally get to meet up in person. I don't know when that'll be. I just believe that's going to happen. So, yeah, I hope so, too. All right. You take care. Thanks, buddy. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks once again to Benji for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week. <laughs>